Hebrews, verse by verse. The new and living way. This is part 40. The text is Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. And, and the title is, you'll see why. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. Those three commands from the text, let us consider, actually comes in a verse we'll study next week. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider. Hebrews 10, 19 to 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have... By the way, I should mention, every once in a while, I get questioned about this. The Greek word, therefore, brothers... Fix that. For brothers. In many cases, not all of them, but in this case, means brothers and sisters. It's a Greek word including both genders. Well, then why brothers? Only because I prefer a text that gives you exactly... Brothers is the word that was chosen because of a patriarchal society in which this text was written. I personally consider having it exactly as it was written and give an explanation of it rather than somebody else start interpreting the text for me and changing what was written. That's just my preference. Um, There are some modern translations that they will make all the changes that they think will be more acceptable to our culture. And so they'll just modify that and put brothers and sisters or people or, or something like that. The ESV is a pretty literal translation And it will put exactly what was written. And then you can explain to a different culture what I just explained. That that term in the Greek was a term that included both genders. I'm not going to do that every time we read the word brothers. But just so you understand. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus... By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the household of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let's pray together. We want to be followers of Christ who out of love and delight and joy uh, aren't wavering followers of Christ. We want to be followers of Christ that aren't knocked off stride by everything that comes along pressuring us to tilt and to lean away from the kind of devotion to our Lord that's encouraged and even demanded in a text like this. 
we're weak, our minds wander. And so, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and create the life in us that you desire? And let your word be one of the tools that's primarily used to do that in this service this morning. In addition to the fellowship of believers and the prayers of the saints, the truth of your word. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This text opens up the second main portion of the book of Hebrews. It divides right about here. Theology turns into application. Doctrinal truth, it's been heavy. It's been pretty dense. It starts to turn into action. There's a particular value in this text that I hope I can show you. In the way that it demonstrates how our minds are to, are to process Bible reading. How our minds are to engage with a text like this so that, so that truth, doctrinal truth, becomes meat and bread. It's a text really all about, all about making connections with Bible statements. It's, it's about forging links with things that have been previously taught. You can see how the Holy Spirit does it in a text like this. If you look at these words, since, since we have confidence, and since we have a great priest, then Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. This is stuff we've already learned. Since we have this confidence. Since we have a great high priest. He's he's given us nine and a half chapters on those truths. Now he's going to say, so in view of that, since that, then let's do this. Since this, then let's do that. So first he calls our minds backward to things just taught, since we have 19, since we have 21, and then the Holy Spirit presses our minds forward. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Next week, let us consider, verse 24. And so so we start to see a kind of momentum in a text like this. A momentum in understanding, knowing, and then applying. Since we know this, let us do that. Since we have discovered this, we ought to be doing that. So this is the way the Holy Spirit takes us from reading to to feeding, to, to applying, to growing in things that we've just processed mentally and learned. This is what turns ideas into bread. If if we miss this, you can starve spiritually reading your Bible all the way. Because it isn't just about reading the words and sentences, it's about connecting the dots. That's what we're learning in this text. It's about making connections. It's about seeing what's said and what it leads to. And you have to bridge those things in your mind as you study the Bible. 
So this text isn't just about certain ideas from the letter to the Hebrews. It's really a great text about how to read any passage in your Bible. It's a text about connecting those dots when you do your devotions at home, when you listen to a sermon. This is the Holy Spirit's way of moving us from a way of knowing to a way of living. All right, point number one. You should have more confidence in drawing near to God than Abraham or David ever did. I get that in Hebrews 10, 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers, since, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, Flesh, curtain. He wants us to make a link there in our minds. And since we have a great high priest over the household of God, and I'm just doing dot, 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 because we'll get to that in the next point. Our writer spells out four benefits of the new covenant that have been opened up. That's, that's the word he actually uses, opened. They've been opened up for us through the sacrifice of Christ's death. And, and why he's doing this, where he's taking us, he's going to spell out these four benefits, and then he's going to say in verse 22, so let us draw near. If, if we are thinking about these benefits, okay, four of them, we connect the dots. If we understand these four benefits, it should help us to draw near. It's not just academic. You want to you live close to God. You want to walk in step with Jesus? I do. What will help me do that? He says, I got four things for you. So thinking through these four benefits will help a weak person like me draw closer to God. And if I forget these four benefits, my condemning heart will become my own worst enemy and I'll live in fear of God, even as I go to church regularly. I'll live in fear of him. I'll be intimidated. I'll be condemned. My own heart will become my, my own worst enemy. I'll feel, I'll feel like, you felt this. I have, I have no business drawing near to God. What right do I have? And so I will avoid him, and I will think of him as unapproachable, just in my time of need, this writer's going to say, just when I need him most. So there's a lot at stake here. Carefully consider these four benefits. A, the new covenant inspires confidence because all the obstacles to drawing near to God have been removed. All the obstacles to drawing near to God have been removed. 19 just says, since we have confidence. One of the things that we should have learned plowing through that doctrinal section, the first nine and a half chapters, ten chapters of Hebrews, one of the things that our writer was at pains to show us is there were plenty of obstacles under the Old Covenant to drawing near to God. 
there was, there was the curse of a law broken and unkept by me. And that stood in the way. Do you remember when the commandments were given on the mount? Moses goes up the mountain. Do you remember the way God instructs they build a fence all around the base of the mountain? God said, don't, don't, don't anyone come near the mountain while I'm giving the law. What's that all about? And then he says, and by the way, keep your sheep and your goats and your livestock. You keep them away from the mountain. Don't let them touch the mountain. What happens if they did? They will die. There's this, there's this holy, demanding law that's being carved into tablets of stone. And in anticipation of the nature of these fallen people at the base of the mountain, you people, you people have no business anywhere near here. There's that law. I don't keep it perfectly. You don't keep it perfectly. These people, these people were being kept from drawing near, right? These people were being told, keep out. Then there was the separation of the holy place and the holy of holies. We studied that for weeks in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. Do you know what happened? If anyone but the priest or the high priest entered those sacred places, they died. You read about the priest going in and they tie a rope around his ankle so if he does something wrong in there and he's struck dead, they can drag him out without anybody else going in. I'm not making it up. Do you remember how many times people had to bring those sacrifices for sin to the priest? Every morning, every night. We looked at that last Sunday. This is, this is the covenant King David lived his whole life under. He was, he was reminded of his continuous, unremoved, standing sin, the broken law, every day of his life. This is the covenant the man after God's own heart had to live with every day. Now, I said we're looking at four benefits. Benefit number one, confidence under the new covenant. So, so here's, here's, here's what I know. The law of God, that law that I don't keep, that law of fire and smoke and judgment, every bit of that law has been perfectly fulfilled in God the Son, the Lamb of God, slain in my place. His sinless life fulfilled every detail of God's law perfectly. What that means is, now he's, he's at the right hand of God, the text says. And what that means is there is a man, the man Christ Jesus, there is a perfectly accomplished righteousness, a perfect law-keeping, covenant-keeping righteousness. It's in the presence of God, and it's on my behalf. Let me say something that might shock you. 
An absolutely pure, holy, just God doesn't condemn one broken law in Don Horbin as I stand in Christ Jesus. Confidence. Confidence. Consider also, here's another obstacle removed. There are no longer any sacrifices offered for my sins. That was the point, by the way, our writer made, if you recall, in, in verse 18. I hope I have it here. Not the one I want. Hebrews 10, 18, sorry. Where there is, don't look at that verse. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So this is, this is my ongoing reminder. 10, 18. How do I know my sins are forgiven? And he says, well, do you, are, do you see any more sacrifices being offered? Well, no, I don't. Do you know what that means, Don? What's it mean? Because there are no more sacrifices being offered, it's because there are no more sacrifices required. That those sins, that those sins really are forgiven. They're gone. David never had that. Sacrifices had to keep coming. Keep them coming, David. Keep them coming. Consider also that that visible separation. We're talking about the obstacles that have been removed. That inspire confidence. The fulfilled law through Christ. No more sacrifices offered because the sins are forgiven. Consider that, that covenant sign. That separation from the presence of God. So the high priest, he goes into the Holy of Holies. There's a heavy curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from every other place. And when the high priest went in alone, he pulled that curtain shut behind him. So that curtain was to bar all others from coming into the dwelling place of God. And that was the curtain torn from top to bottom. The minute, the minute Jesus said it's finished. What went through people's heads? They stood there and all of a sudden... And it's just flopping in the breeze. Holy of Holies. Wide open. So, so we're being led to connect the dots. It's the removal of all these obstacles... ...that inspires confidence. We have confidence... David never saw any of this in his lifetime. None of it. On to benefit number two. The way you and I approach a holy God is described with with two words in that 20th verse. It's new and it's living. Do you see that in the text? By a new and living way. It's easy to read that and just see the writer sort of waxing eloquent with poetic language. But that's not what's happening here. Those two words, they describe a totally different reality than ever existed under the Old Covenant. Now, I hope I can make you see how precious those two adjectives are. So, first, 
the way to drawing near to God is described as new. Not merely because it's a bit different from what was before. In other words, the newness of the new covenant isn't just that, well, we've added something. You know, you got the, you buy the 2017 automobile and it doesn't have heated rear seats, but you get the 2018 and you got heated rear seats. So it's not new like that. Additional. Our new covenant, access to God, is called new in this sense. It is totally unlike the covenant that is described, and here's the verse I want now, 8.13. In speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old ready to vanish away. Notice that phrase growing, this one. Some of us can relate to it. It's growing old. It just speaks, doesn't it? It speaks sort of of, of uh, diminished power and vigor and energy. I'll never forget, growing old, I will never forget hearing Jack Hayford, years and years ago, his mother was very aged and about to pass on, but for the last few years of her life, stayed in the house with Jack and Anna Hayford. And he was up early one morning, and he was walking down the hallway, and he knew his mom was in a special shower that they had sort of constructed for her. She evidently was done, and she was, I guess, drying off. And as he walked by the door, and she would have been in her 90s, but still quite with it, and he heard her say, and he imagined her looking in the mirror, and this is what the words that he heard through the door. What's a sweet thing like you doing in a body like this? <laughs> Trust me, growing old. There's there's a couple hundred people sitting in this room. They're sitting here right now and they're wondering what happened. This covenant, this first covenant, it, it, was, it was growing old. Diminished power. Loss of strength. Tired. And this helps demonstrate, this helps demonstrate the newness of the new covenant. What, what he means is new and living are the two words. We're looking at new right now. It isn't a weakening covenant. Time has passed, but it isn't aging. There's never any lack in it. It it comes into every life with the same freshness as when it was first birthed. And after reaching into multiplied millions of sinful, decaying hearts, it comes to the next heart with no decrease in effectiveness whatsoever. It is always new. It is never aging. It's as though each redeemed sinner is the very first one redeemed under the power of the new covenant. Nothing lessens. 
in addition to being called new, our covenant is called living. Verse 20, by a new and living way. The new covenant is living in the sense that it, it uh, unlike the old, it produces the life it requires. Living in the sense of life-giving. It's, the new covenant is a generating covenant. It, it, it was initiated by the one who actually conquered death. It is implanted in our hearts and minds. We looked at that last Sunday by the living spirit of God himself. It is an overcoming covenant. Paul talks about it in different words, but it's the very same covenant where he says, There is thou therefore no condemnation. That's that confidence factor we just looked at. To those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You can see this. The new covenant carries its own energy. It creates what it demands. That's what those words set you free, free in Christ Jesus. This is not just emotional freedom. You know, some people jump and shout when they worship. That's not the freedom that's being talked about here. This is, it's a moral freedom. It's a spiritual freedom. It's a freedom to grow into being and becoming what you never could in your own strength. That kind of freedom. Benefit number three. C. The torn flesh of Christ's body is the proof of the open way and the torn curtain. We talked about this before, but I want to I look at it as a separate point. The new and living way that he opened for us, and then he makes this link, the curtain. He wants us thinking about that curtain. That's why he uses that word. That is through his flesh. In just a couple of verses, in fact, in verse 22, our writer is going to urge all these doubting, struggling believers, these persecuted Jewish believers, these believers being lured back under the law, away from Christ. He's going to tell them, "You, you people need to draw near. Don't waver, don't abandon, draw near, come close. This would have been an outrageous thought under the Old Covenant. An outrageous thought. We can't appreciate it. That veil in front of the Holy of Holies, the only place, the only place where any kind of temporary pardon could ever be obtained for sinful people, that veil just said, keep out. It didn't say draw near. This is the central place of the crucified body in proper atonement theology. His His broken body is still the only place where there's an opening into the presence of God. This is is the message of Christianity to every other religion on the planet. If you're going to draw near to God, there's an opening. Where? It's in the body of Christ crucified on the cross. If you think you're going to draw near to God in any other way, it's not going to work. The evangelical church is losing that belief really fast. Really fast. It doesn't sound tolerant.
No other ways were ever opened up. There will never be another option. As surely as Christ died, as surely as his body was torn, that opened way will never be closed to a repentant heart. Never. It's always open. And there are no other openings available. And the church needs to hold on to both those truths. D, I said there were four benefits. Here's the fourth one. The new covenant establishes our corporate worship as surely as our private devotion. This doesn't get talked about very much. Look what he says in verse 21. And since we have, it's plural, a great high priest, and then he says, over the, over the house of God. There's so much fresh thinking needed here. How prone we are, even in the way I've spoken about it so far in this teaching. How prone we are to think only of our personal access to God provided through the cross. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. The burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received. My, it's I, me, my, mine. That's the way we're trained to think about the cross. And it's gloriously true. No argument from me. That's not what he's talking about here. Our writer is insisting that Christ's new covenant sacrifice was was made with an idea, a provision for for the house of God. There was a there was a corporate reason. Jesus shed his blood. He died for your place. In his household, your place in his church, your place in Cedarview Community Church was blood bought. He died to ensure your chair this morning wouldn't be empty and Christ denying. He died to purchase corporate celebration, he died to purchase corporate witness. It takes thoughtfulness to savor this aspect of the cross. This aspect of the cross, the household effect. It takes a great deal of self-denial. The self-denial that treasures our own time, our own schedules. Over the miraculous privilege of corporate life. What I want to say is this. Every time you park your car, trudge through the snow, hang up your coat, take your kids to the washroom, and find your favorite assigned seat in the sanctuary, every time you do that, it's the result of a miracle. It's not like going to the country club, or the theater, or the cinema, or the ball game. This is a supernatural purchase. That we are a part of here. Christ shed his blood to create this house. Don't make it trivial. Don't make it automatic. It it shallows out our church life tragically. When we think of our meeting this morning and tonight as just something we do. 
This is something Christ's torn flesh created. As surely as God created the heavens and the earth. And as surely as God creates new birth. An eternal corporate people has been divinely bought. It's God's collective building project. Jesus loves his church dearly. Why does he love it? Just because he's affectionate? No, he died for it. Remember where we are. We've been considering four benefits of the new covenant over the old. Now as we wrap up here, our writer's logic is, since, remember I underlined it, since these things have happened, since these things are true, we are now enabled more than David or Abraham ever were We are enabled to do certain things. And we're meant to work this through in our minds. We're to connect the dots. So here's where it goes. There are these four benefits of the new covenant. Four of them. We're to consider them. Think about them. And here's where it leads us. Point number two. We must never allow anything in our inner selves to keep us away from Father God. He has some things here. The idea basically is, come. Let us draw near. Then he says, with a true heart, okay, full assurance of faith, with our hearts. Notice, this is the second time, right? Heart, hearts. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our, our bodies, so heart and then bodies, our bodies washed with pure water. Um, because this verse, I don't know what translation you have, but because this verse is, it comes at the tail end. 22 comes at the tail end of one long continuous sentence that starts in verse 19, if you see that. And the reason I stress that is, it, it means the, the therefore at the beginning of 19, applies to the let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith. Is that too complicated? Do you see what I'm saying there? That therefore at the beginning of 19 applies to everything in that sentence and that sentence ends in verse 22. So we would read it like this. Therefore, 19, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. 22. And he tells us, how are we to draw near? A, we're to draw near with hearts full of faith and empty of conniving duplicity. I, I wasn't trying to be fancy with those words. They just seemed like the best ones for the job. Let us draw near true heart and then our our hearts again sprinkled clean from an evil conscience so it's heart hearts and it's true and then it's sprinkled clean from an evil conscience so this repeated emphasis on the condition of the heart when we draw near that that's the deal 
So on the positive side, our hearts are to be true and in full assurance of faith. That's the positive thing about our hearts. On the negative side, you can see it in that verse, our hearts are to be clean from an evil conscience. So true, full assurance of faith, clean from an evil conscience. And I think those are different ways of teaching this, the same idea. I, I, I can't make a sinless approach to God in myself. I think these are different ways of teaching that while none of us possesses a sinless heart, that's why we need to draw near in the first place, we must come with a pure heart. And that the mistake is to think those are the same thing, and they aren't. They aren't. Sinless and pure are not the same thing. Purity of heart means, it means that when I come, the way is open through the, the torn flesh of Christ. And, and it means that when I come, my heart must be absolutely honest, and my heart must be absolutely uniform in its dependence on Christ. So, so I can't come trying to manipulate God. I can't come trying to cover up a hidden agenda of continuing in sin all the while thinking, well, I'll just get more grace. After all, Paul says where sin abounds, grace does more abound, so I don't have to worry. See, that's what I meant by duplicity. A heart that's going in two directions at the same time. You can't do that if you have a true heart. And you can't approach God. You can't scheme and approach God. I can't scheme and approach God. Say that with me. I can't scheme and approach God. There can't be another angle. Heart has to be true. True. This kind of scheming, by the way, is not easy to root out. It's easy for me to want God's help and grace in one area of my life while cherishing my own self-rule in another area of my life. That's not a true heart. And because no one else can see my heart, the, the only pressure I will feel to be totally honest and thorough, the only pressure that's ever going to be there will be from the Holy Spirit. And, and I'm the only one who will ever know whether I'm listening to the Holy Spirit or not. You're never going to know. Do you see what I'm getting at? That's what those words mean about about my heart being true and then cleansed from an evil conscience, 22. My heart is true in the sense that I never push past the voice of the Spirit when I draw near. The second thing he says is we are to draw near with a willingness to find transforming grace for outwardly binding habits. I think you'll see the difference when you look at the last part of that 22nd verse. So hearts, true, cleansed from an evil conscience. And then he says, and our, and our bodies, so this isn't hearts now. It's strange. Our bodies washed with pure water. And there are those 
who think, usually more in a Reformed tradition, they think that this is a reference to Christian baptism. I don't. And most commentaries don't see a connection to baptism in these words. Not when you take it in the context. I think the best way to explain them, and they're tricky, the best way to explain them is that they're the external application of the heart cleansing just mentioned before in the same verse. So, so there are outward visible sins, aren't there? They mess up churches. They break up families. They ruin individuals. And, and many times we almost... You think of the habits in your own life that affect the body... Many times we almost despair of transformation. There's hopelessness. And it can keep you from drawing near. And so our writer wants to feed hope. So many of the needs, Jesus, why do you think we have recorded where so many of the needs that Jesus met were outward physical conditions? So that we could see he didn't just come and cleanse inward sin. But he could deal with with outward conditions. Outward needs. Outward sins. Adultery. Same-sex relationships. Fornication. He raised physical bodies from the grave. Trust God's grace with the sins that form destructive habits and the needs that break your heart. Don't let those keep you from drawing near. Last point, point number three. Never, never, never take your faith in Christ lightly. in that 23rd verse let us let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is is faithful we don't we don't use that old english much anymore hold hold fast it doesn't carry quite the contemporary relevance in our speech, but it's not so dusty and ancient that we can't see what our writer is saying. If I tell you, if I, if I place something in your hand and I say, now you're going to have to hold fast to this. If I say that to you, I'm, I'm telling you something about it, am I not? What, what am I telling you? Well, I'm telling you that there are going to be constant contrary forces trying to pull that away from you. Right? That, that you can't just hold this lightly or you'll lose it. That's what I'm saying. When I say hold fast to something, think of a tug of war and the way they grab that rope and wrap it around their waist a couple of times because there's people pulling on the other end. Hold fast the confession of your hope. There are a million forces in an opposite, contrary direction. And I want to just eliminate confusion here. We need to be careful. We are saved by faith and not by works. True enough. And yet it takes considerable work 
to hold on to your faith. And those aren't contradictory. You are saved by faith plus nothing. And it takes incredible work to hold on to your faith. Why do we do this? Like, like what, what? 40 weeks. Good night, Pastor Don. 40 weeks in Hebrews. And it's all thee, thou, therefore, covenants, blood, animal. Like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Why can't you give us, like, you know, a kind of a, let's get together and do three tips to a zippier sex life and, and four things to make more money and how to be happy-pappy all the time. Like, let's just do that. Why this work? Because, here's a sentence I don't want you ever to forget. You ready? The only thing that will happen to your Christian faith while you're not thinking about it is it will disappear. The only thing that will happen to your Christian faith while you're not thinking about it is it will disappear. The only thing more difficult than learning the truth is holding on to it. Here's what that means. Singers, musicians, you can come on up. Go ahead. The hard part, the hard part that any Uh, teacher, pastor, leader has. The hard part is convincing people that there is more power and transformation to be found in regular Christian maintenance than the average believer ever dreams. More disasters creep into our souls by gradual, silent laziness than we ever discern until it's too late. And we wonder, whatever happened to so-and-so? Man, they used to be in church all the time. I haven't seen them for two years. So, so, don't do this. Don't waver. Uh, apparently, you still with me? Apparently, our writer feels that Don Horbin needs to be told not to waver. There's a daily routineness to a powerful Christian life. There are glorious moments, to be sure, but it's not all going to be fireworks. And you can become all that God wants you to be. Every promise, every promise of God will be found trustworthy over time. Every promise of God will be found trustworthy over time. Christ, we studied, will put every enemy under his feet. You have these wonderful four advantages over any Christian who's ever lived. Let us draw near. Let us draw near. Pastor Don, how close do you want to be to Jesus? Just closer. That's it. Just closer. And everyone said?